You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. By good fortune, I happen to have an incredibly strong sense of direction. Generally, that's a helpful thing, particularly when navigating through unfamiliar neighborhoods or unknown waters. It might be getting a bit blunted as I find myself relying more and more on GPS for driving directions, but it's still nice to know I can use a map and my good directional sense as a fallback in a pinch. I said it was mostly a good thing, and you may wonder how there could be a downside to it. But there is, and it's this. For me, the sense is so strong that on the few occasions in my life where I have where I've become disoriented, convinced that I'm heading north when it's actually south, it causes me a kind of visceral distress, almost like vertigo. My brain can't seem to consider the possibility that that is south because I know with everything in me that it's north. Strongly held convictions are helpful when they're true, but they can be pretty problematic when they're not. Through the season of Lent, we've been on a journey traveling with Jesus toward Easter. And at the stops we've made along the way, we've found people who offered a challenge to what the crowd around Jesus were expecting, who offered an opportunity to reorient the way that they were thinking about things. Four weeks ago, we met a widow who lived in abject poverty but was lauded for her extravagant generosity. Two weeks ago, it was a wordless woman who told a story to the men in the room, Jesus' disciples and their friends, through a piece of prophetic theater. Last week, we met Bartimaeus, a man who, despite being completely blind, sees Jesus more clearly than most, addressing him with the title Son of David, a clear reference to Jesus as Messiah. This week, Jesus himself defies the expectations of what the triumphant entry of a new monarch should look like. Instead of riding a powerful war horse, he's astride a lowly donkey. Instead of a phalanx of soldiers carrying swords, it was commoners brandishing palm fronds. And the mismatch with expectations would continue as the week progressed a coronation with a ring of thorns rather than a crown of gold. And instead of being elevated to a throne on a dais, he was raised up on a cross. Let's read Mark's account of that first Palm Sunday. And when they came near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village before you, and right away as you enter into it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it here again at once. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? So they told them, just as Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. 
and many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went ahead and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It's a familiar story to us, and that can make it hard for us to see the unexpected, discordant elements in it. Many in the crowd with Jesus that day probably also missed those bits, not because they were familiar, but because they were so deeply convinced that they knew what Messiah's role would be that they couldn't see them. We begin with the donkey, a borrowed donkey. It was entirely the wrong kind of ride for the man they thought would be leading a violent rebellion and ousting the Romans from their territory. And it's not just the fact that it is not a war horse that's significant. There is specific significance in the choice of a donkey. Probably the most important meaning is the fulfillment of a prophecy by the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Here's what he said more than 500 years earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king comes to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Jesus' choice of ride is a deliberate fulfillment of that prophecy. But the context is more than an announcement of a coming king. It's the promise of the inauguration of a kingdom of peace. Zechariah goes on to say, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut down, and he will announce peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The prophet sees Messiah coming as a king of peace who achieves universal dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. But his victory doesn't come through military conquest. It comes by peaceful means. He disarms both his own people and his enemies. He brings a peace that is much more than a temporary ceasefire. It's an end to war. It's a peace that will be as wonderful for his enemies as it is for his people. The donkey is also significant because it represents exchanging a military animal with a farm animal. It's reminiscent for me of a prophecy offered by two different prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, Isaiah and Micah, a prophecy that talks about the impact of the coming Messiah. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The production of war and instruments of war is being replaced with tools for the production of food. Swords into plows, spears into pruning hooks, missile silos into grain silos, It's a beautiful dream, but one that seems so unattainable, especially these days. We live in a world where so many people live in abject poverty and face debilitating hunger. Yet at the same time, ours is a world that incurs an estimated $2 trillion a year in military expenditures. A world that could use some swords being turned into plows. 
That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus is announcing. He exchanges the war horse for a humble donkey. The donkey is also borrowed for the purpose of the parade and returned thereafter. Unlike the military commanders and leaders of his time, Jesus didn't use his position to enrich himself, nor did he follow the common practice of pillaging what he needed from the civilian population. Jesus began his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount where he announces the blessedness of the poor in spirit and the meek, and he ends his ministry with an object lesson on poverty of spirit and meekness. But the crowds apparently don't see any of this. Well, well, they see it, but they don't see what it means. No, they're all about the palm branches and the hosannas. They are celebrating the coming king and the coming kingdom. But it's a bit ironic that they understand so little of what that kingdom will be like. A few weeks ago, Aaron pointed out that it was in this context that James and John wanted Jesus to launch an apocalypse firestorm on a Samaritan town that didn't welcome them. Then last week, those same two disciples, the sons of thunder, ask if they can have the positions on Jesus' right and left in his kingdom. Jesus was certainly accurate when he pointed out they didn't know what they were asking for. When he did come into his kingdom, the ones at his right and left were the two criminals who were crucified with him. The disciples wanted Jesus to initiate a new kingdom, but not a new kind of kingdom. They apparently didn't see a problem with the violent retribution on enemies when they wanted to smite the Samaritan village. And they envisioned a kingdom where the leaders would have positions of great power and authority. They basically wanted the Pax Romana. What was that? Well, it was a period in Roman history lasting for about 300 years, from Julius Caesar to the last of the five good emperors. It was called the Peace of Rome, but it was hardly peaceful. Rebellions and skirmishes, particularly on the fringes of the empire, were constantly being snuffed out by the powerful military. Perhaps it was called peace because there were less of those skirmishes than usual, but that was only because of the intimidating magnitude of Rome's central power. And it was a peace that only held until that central power began to rot from within. The disciples could also be forgiven for envisioning that kind of so-called peace because the Hebrew scriptures, the only Bible they knew, were full of it. The Messiah was to be the son of David, and throughout the Psalms, David calls on God to wipe out his enemies, to rain down violent destruction on them. Those passages are still part of the Bible that we read. Some of the saints of the early church found it helpful to read those psalms as metaphorical, that we should see them as pleas to God to wipe out the sins that we struggle with, greed, lust, self-pity, jealousy, and selfishness. Some scholars in the Eastern Orthodox tradition see the Old Testament as a kind of mirror for us and teach that passages like the violent psalms challenge us to confront the anger and violence that is present in our own hearts. But now that we have seen Jesus, the perfect revelation of God, the one thing we can't do with those violent texts is to use them as a model for life. We follow Jesus, and he says, Love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, 
and pray for those who spitefully mistreat you. James and John knew the narrative of a Davidic kingdom from the Hebrew scriptures, and they knew the Pax Romana. It's not clear that they really saw a problem with either of those models. They just wanted Jesus to be in charge of the system and to get some reflected glory for themselves in the process. Despite three years of listening to Jesus' teaching, they just couldn't see another way. Their notion of kingdom was like my fixed but wrong notion of where north was when I got disoriented, so inflexible that it was distressing to even think about changing. They knew that the king who ruled the kingdom was the one who had amassed the most military power. And when that power was great enough to scare others into submission, then there would be peace. But Jesus was offering a different way, a kingdom that was not based on having more military might than others, but on the disarmament of both friend and foe. Four days after Palm Sunday, Jesus is having his last supper with his friends, and he comes back to the theme of peace. He says, I give you peace, the kind of peace that only I can give. It isn't like the peace this world can give. His peace is of a totally different quality than the peace of the world. It's a peace that comes not when we defeat an enemy, but when we make him a friend. I recently saw a statistic that incidents of violent road rage rage in the U.S. had doubled in 2021 compared to five years earlier. On average, every 17 hours, someone was injured or killed in that kind of confrontation, often with the involvement of firearms. While I was saddened to read that, I have to say I wasn't surprised. I'm very aware that after two-plus years of pandemic that has robbed us of so much, our collective nerves have been worn thin. There's an added level of anger and frustration everywhere. And because we aren't getting the normal level of face-to-face social discourse that we need to foster our sense of community, it's not surprising that sometimes it breaks out in violence. Pundits on both sides offer their version of how to get to a Pax Romana. For example, calling for removal of all public health restrictions. Or for the imposition of even stricter ones. But a peace that is built on enforced behavior and not on a change of heart where our enemy has become our friend is not the peace that Jesus offers. It's not the peace that his Palm Sunday parade symbolized. It's not the peace of the Prince of Peace who said, I'm leaving you peace. I'm giving you my own peace. I don't give gifts in the way the world does. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid.